the Kuru country, the Kuru country where the Satipatthana suttas are set, is the area around Delhi. And there's a lot of territory between Savati, where many suttas were given, and Delhi, where we just don't find any suttas. Um, which raises the question, did the Buddha actually give this sutta? And most of the scholars agree that this is an anthology. The Buddha gave the practices that are in the sutta, and they were later collected together by the Kuru Sangha and probably brought to the second great council, which was held somewhere between 60 and 100 years after the Buddha's death. We know that there were more suttas after the second council than there were after the first because they reorganized things. And they spent more time organizing things at the second council than they did at the first. So they already had an organization, but it wasn't good enough. And so they had to reorganize. So apparently they had a lot more suttas and they put them in the collection we have now of long, middle, connected, numerical, and miscellaneous. There are multiple versions of the Satipatthana Sutta. There's not just the two that are almost identical in the Pali Canon. There's also a version in the Abhidhamma, which is much simpler and only has five practices, not the 13 that we find in the Sutta versions. There are two Chinese versions, there's a Tibetan version, there's some Sanskrit, I believe, and none of them are identical. They have different practices in different orders. Some of them, one of the Chinese ones is, I think, got 22 practices in it. Uh, so yeah, it, it varies quite a lot. Clearly, it's an important anthology, and whether the Buddha actually spoke this sutta is not as important as the fact that these are all teachings that come from the Buddha. Thus, if I heard once the Blessed One was staying among the Kurus, there is a market town of theirs called Kamasadama. And there the Blessed One addressed the monks. Monks, Lord, they replied. And the Blessed One said, there is, monks, this one going path that leads to the purification of beings for the overcoming of sorrow and distress, for the disappearance of pain and sadness, for the gaining of the right path, for the realization of Nibbana, that is to say, the four establishments of mindfulness. So there is this one going path. That's the literal translation. You find it translated multiple ways. Actually, what I'm reading from, it says there is this one way. Uh, sometimes you see it translated this one and only way, but it's actually probably a pun. The suttas are full of puns, but unless there's a footnote or you read Pali, you wouldn't know that. So, uh, yeah, one going path could be interpreted as a path that leads in one direction only. Uh, a one-way dead-end street. Okay, so you, you follow this and it's going to take you to this place. Um, it could also be a path that's only wide enough for one person to walk on at a time. 
meaning you have to do this practice for yourself. It doesn't matter how much money you have. You cannot hire somebody to meditate for you, right? You've got to do the practice. So, yeah, a one going path. It leads to, and you've got to do it yourself, the purification of beings, the overcoming of sorrow and distress, the disappearance of pain and sadness, gaining the right path, the realization of Nibbana. And it's the four establishments of mindfulness. What are these four? Here, one abides contemplating body as body, ardent, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside hankering and fretting for the world. One abides contemplating Vedana as Vedana, mind states as mind states, phenomena as phenomena, ardent, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside hankering and fretting for the world. So this is the four categories of which we're to be mindful. And we're to be ardent, you know, really, really do this. Clearly aware and mindful, having put aside hankering and fretting for the world, having put aside wanting other things or worrying about other things, just simply being present with what's going on in the here and now. Now, the construct body is body, Vedana is Vedana. Uh, scholars are discussing that. Uh, body as body, I think, means you are being mindful of your body, not as my body, but as a field of sensations. You're being mindful of your Vedana, not as my Vedana, but as pleasant, unpleasant, and neither arising. And the same with mind and phenomena. You're not identified with it. Some people say it's to isolate it. So when you're being aware of body, it's just the body as opposed to any Vedana coming off the body or what your mind state might be about the body. And I think that's probably valid as well. So how does one abide contemplating the body as body? The word contemplating here, uh, yeah, we'll do some of what goes on as meditations and we'll do some of what goes on as contemplation. So now contemplating the body as body is sort of a general term. How, how are we going to work with the body in order to uh, fulfill this establishment of mindfulness. Here, having gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or an empty place, so the forest, the root of a tree, or an empty place. Basically, having gone to somewhere where you won't be disturbed. All right, so you're in your house and hopefully there's no disturbances or you're in a cabin someplace. Yeah, this is what's meant. The meditation hall at a retreat center, this, it would be an empty place. There's nobody in there uh, selling things or doing handicrafts or cooking or anything like that. It's a place where you won't be disturbed. One sits down cross-legged, holds one's body erect, and establishes mindfulness before oneself. So sitting cross-legged is great if you can do it. Otherwise, kneel on a bench, sit on a chair, whatever. 
hold one's body erect. That helps with the breathing. It also tends to help keep you awake. Having established mindfulness before oneself. Literally having established mindfulness at the mukta. And as I said, mukta literally is mouth. But like we speak of the mouth of a cave, it can mean opening. And I'm guessing it's the opening of the nostrils rather than breathing through your mouth to meditate. And then we have mindfulness of breathing. Mindfully, one breathes in, mindfully, one breathes out. And then four steps. Breathing in a long breath, one knows one's breathing in a long breath. Breathing out a long breath, one knows that one is breathing out a long breath. Breathing in a short breath, one knows that one is breathing in a short breath. Breathing out a short breath, one knows that one is breathing out a short breath. One trains oneself thinking, I will breathe in conscious of the whole body. One trains oneself thinking, I will breathe out conscious of the whole body. One trains oneself thinking, I will breathe in calming the whole bodily process. One trains oneself thinking, I will breathe out calming the whole bodily process. So these four steps are the first four of 16 steps that you find in the discourses on mindfulness of breathing. Uh, Majima 118 uh, is the longest and probably best known discourse on the 16 steps of mindfulness of breathing. And these are the first four. So the first two, knowing the long breath in and out, short breath in and out, well, this was the basis of the fifth aid that I gave you of knowing the lengths of the breath, right? It could be interpreted the long breath is what you have when you sit down. And then the short breath is what happens when you get really concentrated and your breath gets subtle. Uh, the words are long and short, but uh, maybe that's what's being referred to. Or it could be just simply paying attention to the length of the breath. One other possibility is you sit down and you take some nice, deep, long breaths to start to get yourself settled say three in and out. And then you let the breathing just go to natural. And it probably will slow down a bit. Uh, and so that could be what's being indicated here. And then the next one, the third one, one trains oneself thinking, I will breathe in conscious of the whole body. One trains oneself thinking, I will breathe out conscious of the whole body. Oh boy, there's been a lot of scholarly stuff written on this. Um, the official Theravadan Vasudhimaga interpretation is that one is aware of the whole body of breath. The, the word is kaya, and it does mean body, but it can mean a collection, such as we speak of a body of water or a body of men. Uh, so the whole collection of the breath. And that would be the beginning of the in-breath, middle of the in-breath, end of the in-breath, gap, beginning of the out, middle of the out, end of the out, gap. So the whole body of breath. And you're aware through the entire cycle. So that's the official interpretation you find in the Basudhimaga. Other teachers teach that it's you follow the breath into the body. 
and you're aware of your whole body as you're breathing in and out. That's a particularly good way to work with the breath for insight, but it's not particularly useful for concentration because, well, your attention is moving. We're after one-pointed concentration and you're all over the place, literally all over your body. So yeah, although it's a useful way to work for insight, it's not so useful for concentration. I think a better way is to recognize the effect your breathing is having on your body. So you're breathing, you sit down, you're breathing in and you're noticing your body. And as your breath becomes calmer, you're noticing your body. It's changing, it's becoming calmer as well. I say this because of what follows with the fourth step. One trains oneself thinking, I will breathe in calming the whole bodily process. One trains oneself thinking, I will breathe out calming the whole bodily process. Santikaro was who uh, clued me into this interpretation. This is from Buddha Dasa, and I think I think this is correct. It matches quite well with, with what's found in the steps five, six, seven, and eight, which are about the mind. Again, noticing what's going on and then calming. Now, the calming isn't because you are controlling the breath. You're just intending to breathe in a way that, that calms the body. So you don't control the breath. It's just like, yeah, I, I'm just going to relax into this and let things calm down. All right. I would say these four steps are steps to generate access concentration. Right. You, you follow them well. You get your body calmed down and you'll probably be at access concentration. In the 16 steps, what follows, the next eight steps seem to be increasing your concentration. It's debatable whether the next eight steps correspond to the jhanas. There are some teachers who say that they are the jhanas, and there are other teachers who point out the differences between what's described in the jhanas. I think we can say that the next eight steps once you've gotten to access with the four steps, the next eight are to get you even more concentrated. And then the last four of the 16 steps are insight practices, although there are insights, of course, available all along the way. Ayakema was very fond of saying, a little bit of concentration brings a little bit of insight. A little bit of insight brings a little bit of concentration. So yeah, you're just paying attention to what's going on Thing, what you can learn. We have a simile. Just as a skilled turner or his assistant in making a long turn knows that he's making a long turn, or in making a short turn knows that he's making a short turn. So too, in breathing in a long breath, one knows one is breathing in a long breath, etc. <clears throat> so, You've got somebody working at a lathe, right? And they have their tool and they're making a long turn or they're making a short turn, right? So basically when you're paying attention to your breathing, you should be paying attention in the same way as when you're working with power tools, right? You can't be working at a lathe and, you know, 
watching the basketball game on TV, <laughs> that's not going to work, right? You've got to be fully present with what's going on and paying very careful attention. That's what it means to be doing mindfulness of breathing as a mindfulness practice, really paying attention to your breath, just like you would with power tools. I think this will be for later, but so I don't forget, I'm, I was curious to know if you'll be able to talk about the other practices in the Chinese version that aren't included in the Pali version of the discourse. Uh, because I'm, I'm just curious about other practices. Yeah, uh, one of the other practices is the jhanas that's added into mindfulness of the body, the four jhanas. Uh, and the order is rearranged, and I don't remember what the other practices are. Bhikkhu Analio has uh, an excellent book that goes into the detail of what's found in, in each of them. Um, I think it was his second book. His first book is uh, Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Awakening, which is a very good book. And uh, yeah, what I'm saying here is very much congruent with what you find in that book. And then his next book came out and he discussed what's in the Chinese versions and how they differ from the Pali versions. And I don't remember what all was in there. Mm -hmm. There is also a book called A History of Mindfulness and you can download it from my website. It's a PDF. And so you can download that. And uh, because Sujato goes through the various versions and points out what the differences are and so forth and what he thinks the original version was. Apparently the original version had five practices. And as we come across these original practices, I'll point them out and they show up in, I think all but one of what, all five of them show up in all of, but one version of the Satipatthana that we have. Um, Mindfulness of breathing is not one of the original practices. Surprise. <laughs> yeah, most people are. Um, but when we get the, the full collection of what is, it, it, it kind of makes sense. Uh, there were a lot of suttas already on mindfulness of breathing. And so somebody created an anthology of additional practices. And then it was like, well, yeah, let's stick these other good practices in there as well too. You had not five, but in this version, 13. That's my best guess. Um, yesterday you mentioned um, something to do when the breath gets very, very quiet and subtle and you can't feel it, but I've forgotten other than just a refinement and of your concentration. Is there anything else you could do if you can't feel the breath at the nostrils? Yeah, as long as you still know it's in and out, keep your attention in that spot, all right? But if you feel like you're well concentrated, you could shift your attention to a pleasant sensation, okay? It's like, okay, I'm concentrated enough, my breath has gone away, where's the pleasant sensation? Focus on the pleasant sensation. So if you're going with a general recommendation to start meditation, right, that is a five steps and then you focusing on working on the breath and then hindrances show up and um, one tried to kind of use the antidote and work with the hindrances 
and then hopefully something happens so you can go back to the breath and it feels like the time is running out so is it is it because is it just because mine is not calm yet yeah it takes yeah. like i notice it takes like almost an hour to calm down right and that's fairly common early in a retreat i mean we're only on day three uh hopefully in another day or two things will calm more quickly uh, the first thing of course if you get distracted is just label it relax and come back and that's really all that's necessary unless something keeps pulling you away in which case yeah okay now you may have to use one of the antidotes um, you keep being pulled away because you want something and you relax come back and you're wanting the same thing as a distraction okay now you need to use the antidote because it's happening repeatedly but the first thing is just yeah Label, relax, come back. And sometimes that's all that's necessary to take care of it. Uh, but yeah, at this point of the retreat, most everybody's still working at getting settled. It, it just takes, like I said, three to five days. And this is early on the third day. So hopefully over the next couple of days, things settle in more. And you get to the point that takes you an hour to get to now. You'll get there, say, in 30 minutes or 20 minutes or maybe even 10 minutes. Uh, but yeah, at the start of a retreat, the mind is all over the place. Uh, each of the practices has a refrain. So one abides contemplating body as body internally, contemplating body as body externally, contemplating body as body, both internally and externally. So internally would be your own body. Externally would be someone else's body, which means if you're in the meditation hall and the guy next to you is breathing loudly, you don't have to get upset. You can just follow his breath, right? It works, you know, just listen and follow his breath. And then if he gets quiet, you just go back to your to your own breath. It's, it's workable that way. Off the cushion, you can notice that you're breathing. You can notice that the squirrels around you are breathing. You can notice any other people you encounter are breathing. Uh, breath is life, as they say. So you just notice internally and externally. One abides contemplating arising phenomena in the body. One abides contemplating vanishing phenomena in the body. One abides contemplating both arising and vanishing phenomena in the body. The breath only works because of change. If your breath stops changing, yeah, in a couple of minutes, you're going to pass out and then you're going to die, right? You're absolutely dependent upon the breath changing. It's got to change and come in and it's got to change and go out and it's just got to keep doing that. So notice the importance of anicca in relation to breathing. Thus mindfulness, there is a body is present to one just for the extent necessary for knowledge and awareness. 
and one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. And that is how one abides contemplating body as body. So the idea is there's a mindfulness and it's not my breath. I'm not breathing. There is just breathing. So there's no identification with it. Just breathing is happening. So internal, so there's the basic practice and then there's the internal external or me and others. And then there's the arising and passing aspect of the basic practice. And then there's the, yeah, this is what's happening and there's no identification with it. Any questions on the refrain? Yeah, uh, I somehow think this has been explained to me before, but I can't remember the whole deal about the repetitive uh, internally and externally and both internally and externally. And, you know, they use that same form and a lot. So, so you can only, what is meant by the both internally and externally? Or is it, I mean, you can only contemplate one or at a time, right? Or is it a whole different perspective on the, the thing? Uh, I think the both is to realize the commonality. Okay, I'm breathing, you're breathing. Yeah, th this is a really common thing. Everybody's breathing. Uh, things are arising, things are passing away. Passing away and arising is happening all the time. It's not just there's a rising and there's passing. It's arising and passing is going on all the time. So to broaden your perspective on it and not lock in to one aspect of it or see the two aspects as somehow separate or anything like that. I think that's what's going on. Okay. So the second practice is given is the four postures. Again, when walking, one knows that one is walking. When standing, one knows that one is standing. When sitting, one knows that one is sitting. When lying down, one knows that one is lying down. In whatever way one's body is disposed, one knows that is how it is. So this is really simple. You can right at this very moment become aware that you're sitting. I mean, that's it. Of course, this is not a really good practice to do for a whole hour. I mean, you know, you sit down and go sitting. Yep, still sitting, still sitting. I mean, that's not gonna work, but we have the same refrain, right? So one abides contemplating body as body, internally, externally, both. So you can see others are also sitting, standing or whatever. But most importantly, one notices a rising, passing, and both arising and passing with the postures. So a question for you, how many times a day do you change your posture between walking, standing, sitting, and lying down? This is what you can be mindful of. Every time you change your posture, can you realize, oh yeah, I just changed from sitting to standing. And then when you start walking, I just changed from standing to walking. 
and you get to where you're going. I just changed from walking to standing, right? This is a really good off the cushion practice. Once when I was at the forest refuge, I decided to count, right? And in a 24 hour period, uh, hundreds of times, I'm not gonna tell you because yeah, you could do it for yourself if you want. Uh, but it was hundreds and hundreds of times. And that wasn't even counting while I was washing dishes. There were so many posture changes between standing and walking at that point. I didn't even bother to count those. But this is a really good practice. I mean, at the end of your meditation period, the bell rings, right? Get yourself collected. And now notice the ceasing of sitting and the arising of standing. And then the ceasing of standing and the arising of walking. And when you get to wherever you are, notice the ceasing of walking and the arising of standing. Okay. This is a really good way to keep your mindfulness up all day long. It's a simple practice. It's also one of the more difficult ones to remember to do. The third practice is entitled here, Clear Awareness. I would call it mindfulness of bodily activities. Again, when going forward or back, one is clearly aware of what one is doing. In looking forward or back, one is clearly aware of what one is doing. In bending and stretching, one is clearly aware of what one is doing. In carrying one's inner and outer robe and bowl, one is clearly aware of what one is doing. In eating, drinking, chewing, and savoring, one is clearly aware of what one is doing. In passing excrement or urine, one is clearly aware of what one is doing. In walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep and waking up, in speaking or staying silent, one is clearly aware of what one is doing. So basically, clearly aware of your bodily activities just you've got your mindfulness going well enough to pay attention to whatever you're doing. If you're washing dishes, you're clearly aware that you're washing dishes. If you're getting dressed, if you're going to the toilet, if you're eating, the usual way we eat is load the fork, shovel it in, right? Start chewing load the fork, soon as there's room, shovel it in. We're actually spending more of our awareness on load the fork that don't taste the food. That's ridiculous, all right? So I'm gonna suggest for this retreat that put your food in front of you, be thankful for it, then load the fork, really pay attention to how you do that, pay attention to getting the fork and food into your mouth. How do you get the food off the fork? You turn it over, use your teeth, use your tongue. How do you get it off? All right, pull the fork out. Don't start chewing yet. Put the fork down, let it go. Now start chewing. Notice the texture. Notice the taste. Notice the change in texture. Notice the change in taste. Watch your tongue. It's an animal in there. It's darting around, dodging your teeth, scraping the food here and there. You're not telling it what to do. It's, it's, it's got a life of its own. 
And then swallowing. How do you know when to swallow? Uh, do you swallow all the food at once or you swallow some and chew some more and swallow some more? Or what? How do you do that? Just pay attention to all that. When your mouth is empty, grab the fork, load it up, repeat. This will slow down your eating. Yep, definitely will slow down your eating. But they do say that slowing down your eating is a good thing. Uh, better for your digestion and uh, you're liable to eat less. You'll notice when you're hungry sooner. And so you'll eat less. And as we saw last night, eating less is antidote for two of the hindrances. So this mindful of, mindfulness of eating practice is actually, yeah, a really important thing. You, you really want to be mindful while you're eating as opposed to just lost in the pleasant vagina of eating. And then it says that one is mindful when falling asleep and waking up. So homework, you can tell me the answer in your interview. Do you fall asleep on an in-breath or an out-breath? Do you wake up on an in-breath or an out-breath? Right? You can do this. It is actually doable. I'll give you a hint. When you're falling asleep, don't pay attention to your breathing. Pay attention to falling asleep. What's it like to fall asleep? All right? If you do that, then you'll be able to tell whether you fall asleep on an in-breath or an out-breath. And then when you wake up, you just got to be mindful immediately to tell whether it's an in-breath or an out-breath, right? And bring your answer to me, you know, tomorrow or after in your interview, right? Any questions? Oh, and of course, internally, externally, you can notice other people doing these things. Uh, rising and passing. The arising and passing and eating. Oh my God, how much arising and passing goes on with eating a meal? I mean, it's just full of change. Uh, if it didn't change, yeah, you'd be stuck with something in your mouth and you couldn't swallow it or anything. So yeah, there's, there's a huge amount of arising and passing going on. So pay attention to that. Any questions? Uh, I was very intrigued of that because I've heard you mentioned before trying to de detect whether it's the in-breath or the out-breath that I fall asleep at. But this instruction I'd missed before, focusing on the, on the um, sensation of falling asleep. When I fall asleep, one of the things I do is imagine that I'm dying as sort of a dying meditation. I'm curious if you think that that would work as long as you're paying attention to what's happening with the process of falling asleep, I think it will work. I mean, if you're pretending that you're dying, but still observing the process, then I think it will work just fine. I mean, it's an experiment. You, you only get one shot a day unless you're taking a nap. Yeah. So play with it and see what happens. It seems like there's a lot of instructions, a lot of different kinds of instructions. 
do you want us to just like pick the things that appeal to us as we're going through the rest of the retreat or do you have any more kind of method to this madness Lee? Yeah, I have a lot more methods to give you. (laughs) So yeah, pick the ones that you like doing, but experiment with each one, you know, play with each one at least a little bit. If you don't like it, it's okay. It's fine. Uh, But I did give you a homework, so you got to at least play with that one. And probably the most important practice I give you for learning the jhanas is the mindfulness of your daily activities. I mean, if you sit and you do a really good job and you get concentrated, and then you stand up and you get mindful, get mindless, yeah, the next time you sit down, you're starting at zero again. But if you can keep your mindfulness up the next time you sit down, yeah, you're not like you were when you got up, but you're not starting from zero. And so continuity of mindfulness is the thing that helps the most. Venerable Pawak, when he's teaching the Sudhimaga Jhanas, you, you use your mindfulness of breathing to get there. And he wants you to be following your breath from the moment you wake up until the moment you fall asleep you know, eating, taking a shower, washing the dishes, going for a walk. You're just on the breath the whole time. That continuity of mindfulness is what's necessary to generate the deep concentration that's required for the Vasudhi Magajanas. Now, you don't have to follow your breath all the time, but yeah, you should be mindful 16 hours a day. You don't have to be mindful while you're sleeping. But other than that, yeah. That one, yeah, that's really important. Uh, posture thing, I mean, I, yeah, I work with it a bit. And then I try that, you know, noticing every posture. Wow, did that keep me mindful that day? I mean, you know, the many hundreds I counted, I'm sure I missed some of them. But I was really mindful for that 24-hour period. So, yeah, it was a useful thing to do. Um But yeah, play with all of these. And if you can relate to it, find it useful and yeah, continue to play with it. And if it just doesn't work for you, let it go. I have a a question that's kind of follow on to that one, which is that, so I've done Zen retreats before and they tend to be very formal so that to create kind of container that keeps that mindfulness going all the time. Mm -hmm. But what I found is that, um, it can also be a bit exhausting to try to do it all day long. And then there's some part of the mind that starts to want to like push it away to not be mindful. And then, and then there's like this interplay that develops where you're like, part of you is trying to be mindful, but another part of you is like, I don't want to do this. I just want to go back to sleep. Not literally, but just, yeah. I don't want to be mindful. Is there, I guess, I don't know how to put it exactly, but like, what is that experience of effort and how does it develop over time? Does it become easier? Does the effort feeling subside over time or how does one play with that experience? Yeah, I think over time, the effort feeling decreases. Uh, I don't know that it ever goes completely away unless you're on a long retreat. There was a practice I would do at the forest refuge. All right, so my timer, I'm meditating in my room. So I have a timer, it rings the bell. Okay, I get up, 
you know, wash my face, whatever. And from the moment I my hand hit the handle to the door, I was trying to be mindful. And if I forgot about that, I had to go back and go back in my room and start over again. And having to start over again a few times, it's like, no, I'm not going to. I'm not, I'm, I'm just going to be mindful. It's easier than going back and starting over. And that was, that was very helpful just to have the, the door handle as a signal. Also at the in, step out into the hall of the forest refuge and at either end there's a sign that says exit, except instead of saying exit, it said, be mindful in my mind. I mean, it still had E-X-I-T, but it was just, when I saw that sign, it was to remind me, oh yeah, go back to being mindful. And so I'm walking down the hall and I've got the mindfulness now going. Um, but it's still got to be that relaxed diligence. So you want to find triggers that bring you back into the mindfulness when you lose it, as opposed to straining to be mindful. So door handles are really good. I anytime you're interacting with the door, faucets, they're really good. Anytime you're interacting with the faucet, you know, it's reminding you to be mindful. So you're, you're just finding signals like that in this exit signs, you know, exit meant be mindful, exit this wandering mind and return to mindfulness. Um, so you find little things like that. However, having said that, when I was studying with Pau Walk, uh, it was a four month retreat and about three months you know, about about two months in, two and a half months in, I had a meltdown one night. It was just like, this is crazy. I'm out of here. Well, I'll stay as long as Pow Ox is here, but then I'm going. This was supposed to be a nine and a half month retreat. So, you know, I was like, I'm getting out of here. This is crazy. And I woke up the next morning. It was like, whoa, that was weird. Wonder what's going on. And finally, it occurred to me, what would I tell a student who came in with the symptoms I'm having? I tell them, take a break. And so, yeah, I took a break. Instead of trying to meditate eight or nine hours a day, I only meditated four hours a day for four days. And I went on long walks and, you know, chilled out because I had been striving so hard and it was not, not useful anymore. You can do it for a while. I mean, if Ascends Shasin for five days, yeah, you probably can go full bore and not totally burn out. But, you know, multiple months, yeah, I burned out. And so then I went back and I was only trying to do seven or eight hours a day instead of eight or nine hours a day. And it was, yeah, it went much better. It was a much better retreat, just on a little more relaxed schedule. So you got to pay attention and if you're generating a lot of tension with what you're doing, it's necessary to relax back a bit. Just don't get completely lost in your relaxing back. For me, the, there's a difference in motivation. Am I doing this because someone told me to, but I don't really think it's a good idea? Or and in other words, is there some resistance or is there do I want to do that? Do, do I see that this is useful? And, and when I see it's useful, it's, it's, it's suddenly, you know, I can be lighter with it and, and I don't waste all my time resisting. Yeah. 
I, I find the same thing. I mean, you know, they told me to smile when I meditated. It was like, I don't feel like smiling. It was only later when I discovered, oh, yeah, this is a really useful thing to do. Gets me into the jhana. And once you get a sense of, oh, yeah, this is a really good thing. I want to do this. This is useful. I'm finding it useful. It does become a lot more easy rather than doing it because somebody told you to do it. Uh, they said it was a good thing to do, but you sort of got to know yourself that, yeah, this feels like a really good thing to do. And it, it does make it a lot easier. Okay. So when the bell rings, don't just jump up and run away. The first thing is recapitulation or review. If you've had a sitting, the likes of which you would like to have again, it helps to know what you did. All right, so what did you do and how did you get wherever you got? So you could even start before you sat down. Had you just done walking meditation? Had you just done some yoga? Had you just eaten a big meal? Uh, had you just got up from a nap? Had you, you know, done something that was very mindful inducing? Right. And then you sat down. How did you sit? How did you put your hands? What was it like to doing the five preliminaries? And then were you following your breath? Were you doing metta? What was your, what was your access method? If you got to access concentration, what did it feel like? How did you know you were there? And then if you got into any of the jhanas, how did you make the transition? What was it like? Right? So just a review of what happened. This can also be useful if you have a meditation, the likes of which you never want to have again, right? I mean, you sit down to meditate right after eating and you fall asleep and it's like, yeah, I don't think that was a good idea, right? So recapitulation. The next one is impermanence. Uh, whatever states you experience, they're gone now. Yep, they were impermanent. The, the, the distractions are probably gone. The, the calm mind, you know, is beginning to fade out. So if you were in the jhanas, they're gone. So notice the impermanent nature of whatever you experienced. Just remember it. And then insights. Did I get any insights? What were they? Insights are like, I don't know, high school Spanish right? You learn Spanish in high school and then you don't use it and it goes, you know, way back there. But then you go to Mexico on vacation and yeah, it starts coming back, you know, and after your two-week vacation in Mexico, you, you've got just enough so you can go into a shop and get what you want and then you go home and it all goes away right quick again, right? Well, insights do the same thing. If you don't keep them fresh, they go back there with the high school Spanish, the first thing for keeping your insights fresh, if you got an insight during this sitting, say it over to yourself. I saw the impermanent nature of my breath or whatever it was. Just make a middle note. You certainly can write it down after the sitting. There are essays on my website and many of the essays actually are something that I wrote down after I gotten the insight you know i got up from sitting and wrote it down or I, the insight came while i was walking and i got back and wrote it down or whatever 
The fourth thing, dedication of merit. You just become aware of the fact you're not doing this solely for yourself. This is going to have an impact on you and everyone you interact with. So just a recognition of that fact. You could say something like, may any merit from the spirit of practice be for the liberation of all beings everywhere, or however you want to phrase it, but just acknowledge to yourself that, yeah, this is, this is bigger than just me. And then resolve to be mindful as you get up and go about your activities. You know, notice the ceasing of sitting and the arising of standing and the ceasing of standing and the arising of walking. And as you're walking to wherever you're going, be mindful, continue to be mindful of it and be mindful if you're now preparing lunch or whatever you're doing. You can remember this with R double I double M. Recapitulation, impermanence, insight, merit, and mindful. 